If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Passage is also in your bulletins uh, this morning, and you can find it if you'd like to use those blue Bibles on page 1018. Uh, I have five sermons to preach before I go on uh, a several-month sabbatical. And my intention had been of these, for these five sermons to take us through the book of Second Peter to which you have uh, just opened. But as I kind of prepared for it, I thought, you know what, that is really uh, dense and intense to do after we just finished Second Samuel and spent so much time in Second Samuel and to try and cram that all into five weeks seemed a little overwhelming to me and I thought might be uh, overwhelming for you as well. Nevertheless, I was inspired by what I was studying in Second Peter and that's why we are open to it uh, this morning. In any case, what I've decided to do is to preach a five sermon kind of mini series on the spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to begin that today with something of an introduction. I'll continue it next Sunday evening. Holt is going to be preaching for us uh, next Sunday morning. Next Sunday evening, I'll continue it with the discipline of cogitation. And then following each week with the discipline of mortification and vivification, the discipline of evangelization, which is to say our missional intent, and then finally the discipline of participation. Some of those words are obviously forced so that I can get the Asians into uh, all of them, but nevertheless, that's the order, that's the way we're going to pursue this. But to begin, uh, we're gonna look here at this first chapter of Second Peter, and in particular, I want to focus on one phrase especially in this. And I'll just point it out to you before I read it. It's the phrase that is found in verse 5 where it says, make every effort. Okay, make every effort. And then if you continue on through here, same word is used in verse 10, but translated, be all the more diligent. And then the same phrase is actually used again in verse 15 where Peter says, and I will make every effort. So that's the thing that I want to point out to us today. Here then, this portion of the God-breathed word that is given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our Lord, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Lord, we pray that today you would help us to understand your word well. We pray that our heart's intent and desire would be to hear your word now, to think about what your word is saying to us, and then to put your word into practice in our lives. Lord, so work in us according to the power of your spirit and through your word and through the ministry of the word now. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I say spiritual disciplines, for some of us, when you hear the phrase spiritual disciplines, perhaps that is a term that you're hearing for the first time. Maybe you've never heard the term spiritual disciplines before, and it has no history in your life. And so we get to talk about it now and introduce you to a topic with which you're not familiar. For others of us, the opposite may be the case. You may hear when I say the, the, the phrase, our spiritual disciplines, and we're going to be thinking about and talking about spiritual disciplines over the next couple of weeks. You may have any number of associations with that term that pop into your head. Some of them may be quite positive. You might recall times when you were very vigorous in your pursuit of God or in the disciplines and the way you pursued them, perhaps uh, with a brother or with a sister in Christ. And you might think, this is great. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about the spiritual disciplines and being refreshed in them. Others might have the opposite reaction. Others might hear spiritual disciplines and go, oh, no. Oh, no, I'm going to have to have a guilt trip for the next five weeks before Eric goes on his sabbatical uh, because I'm going to feel like I'm not doing any of these spiritual disciplines. Uh, or perhaps there was a misunderstanding of the spiritual disciplines sometime in your past that just kind of soured you to this term and this idea. That said, we're going to push through. We're going to push through and we're going to try to understand what these things are and the value of them for us as the people of God. So what are we talking about? Well, when we say spiritual disciplines, we are referring to, and this is, I think, the simplest way that we can define this. We're referring to the practices or the exercises or the training, or you can say the habits that foster spiritual growth. And these are the practices are, or the disciplines that are found and given to us in the Word of God 
and have been practiced by the people of God throughout the ages to foster this growth in our lives spiritually. Peter's last command in this letter, verse 18 of chapter 3, the very last verse is this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in it. And if we were to ask the question, okay, I get it, that's the command that we are to grow, we could ask the question, well, how are we supposed to grow? How do you do that? How do you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The answer to that question, or at least part of the answer to that question, is through the long-term sustained practice of spiritual disciplines. Now, if you had a question, if you asked yourself, how would I grow as a musician? How can I become a better pianist? Or if you asked yourself a question, you, you loved playing baseball. Christian was giving me the details of his team and playing baseball before the service day. And if you said, well, how do I become a better baseball player? Well, your music teacher or your coach is going to give you an answer that's not surprising to any of us. You got to practice, right? You have to practice in order to do that. And we're not just talking about one time. You've got to go out and practice. We're not talking about one week or one session of practice, but instead you've got to develop a rhythm of practice. You've got to develop a habit of practice if you seek to excel in any of those tasks. If you're a pianist, I'm not, but you, know, you have to practice your scales in order to do that. If you want to play baseball, well, you know, you're going to have to take grounders for the rest of your life. You're going to have to take batting practice for the rest of your life and all of the other things that go along with it. Spiritually speaking, then, these are the practices that we find in the Word of God that have been practiced by the saints. And they're not surprising to us. When I, when I list some of these right now, I don't think any of you will go, I, I didn't realize that was a practice that was sanctioned by the Word of God for this. But there are things that are like prayer and the reading and the hearing of the Word of God. We think of things like the worship of the people of God gathered together, the sacraments that are administered in the context of God's people gathered for worship, the fellowship of the saints that we enjoy, fasting. These are things that are given to us in the Word of God as practices that we can use to foster our spiritual growth. Now, there is one thing here that can be a little bit confusing and different from sports or from music, and that is that these practices of which we're speaking now are not only the means by which we have this spiritual growth in grace, but they are also oftentimes the real thing as well, the main thing as well, given the fact that all of our lives are lived before the face of God in the presence of God unto love and unto his glory and unto our 
joy. So in other words, uh, if you're practicing the piano, you might be by yourself, but you're not at, by definition, a concert or a recital, you're just practicing. And if you're taking ground balls or uh, if you're in the batting cages, you are, by definition, not in the game. That's not the case with those other things, since we're always in the presence of God. If worship is a spiritual discipline, we're not worshiping in order to get something else. We're, we're doing part of it right now. So it is both obedience and a discipline as well. Still, nevertheless, that said, and appreciating that difference, the analogy to sports or music training uh, is helpful for us. It's actually quite biblical for us. On the front of your bulletin, the verse that's in the very center of those three verses, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, reads this way, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Not have someone else train you, but you train yourself for godliness. And the word that is used here is the word from which we get our word gymnasium. It's the idea of exercise, of, of, of taking time to prepare yourself well for the task that is before you. In this case, the task set before him is the task of growing in godliness. So let's turn now, with having said that and giving that little bit of an intro, to this letter of 2 Peter and this opening chapter. And let me just set the stage for the focus on that term that I told you that I was going to focus on. Peter begins this letter in a way that is biblically familiar to us. So I'm not going to go into this in any kind of depth right now, but you will recognize, or you already recognized as I read it, that the way Peter begins this is pretty typical of other letters that we read in the New Testament. He's got a concern, and he wants to focus on a particular concern, but before he gets into the substance, the meat of his particular concern that he wants to address, he reminds his readers of two realities. Reality one is what Christ has done for them. And reality number two is what Christ will do for them. So what Christ has done for them, what Christ will do for them. Through Christ, and this is all scattered throughout this first chapter, I'm not going to reference every word that I use here. Through Christ, we have obtained faith. It's something we've got, we, something we have received. By his power, we have been called and elected. We have been, verse, uh, verse 3, granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. It's been given to us. It's been granted to us. In other words, Peter tells us, in very simple words or a very simple word, that in Christ we have received salvation. And as he spells that out throughout this section that I read for us, that means that we have been cleansed from our sins, that we have received a righteousness that has been given to us by God, and that we have escaped the corruption of this world. So you've received this in Christ. In addition to that, to what Christ has done, he also has granted to us, verse 4, these precious and very great promises. Now, promises are obviously meant to point us to the future. So, as much as Peter says, this is what Christ did for you, when he talks about the promises, he's now directing our gaze outward and saying, this is what is promised to you. In verse 11, 
it said this way, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's a sense to which we are already members of, part of the kingdom of God, but Peter here directs the attention to an entrance, to, to something which is to come, your entrance into the kingdom of God. And in chapter 3, he phrases it this way, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what's coming. That's what we're waiting for. That's what Christ is going to give to us. There are promises that have been made to us, promises that have already been fulfilled such that we can wait with confident expectation for an entrance into that eternal kingdom of the Lord. So, having set up that framework, and that's all I'm going to say about it for right now, having set up that framework of what Christ has done and will do for us, he enters into the main theme of his letter. And it's exactly what you would expect. It's what should we do, or what kind, what sort of people ought we to be in light of these realities, in light of who you are because of what Christ has done, in light of where you're going because of what Christ has done, what sort of person ought you to be? That's the question that occupies him in this. You have got blood-bought, Christ-secured, spirit-applied realities in your life. What now? What are you supposed to do with those things now? What does God want for us? And the answer is found in verse 5 and continuing. Peter wants us to be holy people. He wants us to be people of excellence. He wants us to be godly. He wants us to be virtuous people and then gives the list of what that means. What does a virtuous person look like? Here's the list of the qualities that belong to a godly and virtuous person. If we want to use what we use as a musical term, Peter wants us to be spiritual virtuosos. Spiritual virtuosos, spiritual and moral virtuosos in that world, in this world. And to become that, and in light of that goal, we are then given the charge that is in verse 5, make every effort. Make every effort. Or, verse 10, be all the more diligent. So why this strong and repeated exhortation? Why does Peter say to us, do it. Do it with all of your might, with all of your strength. What is he concerned about? Well, as you look at this letter, it seems that he is concerned about a lackadaisical approach to the Christian life. He's concerned about spiritual and moral passivity. He's concerned that people may have misunderstood. They, have may, they may have misunderstood what in fact Christ has done and what in, Christ, in fact Christ will do as a call to say, well, okay, if that's the reality, if Christ is the only one who could save us and Christ is the only one who could bring us into the eternal kingdom and prepare an entrance for us into the eternal kingdom, then 
I can set my life right now on cruise control. I can set my life on driver assist mode and kind of take my hands off the wheel and literally let go and let God take this car because he knows where we're going. And he's the one who's got the power, the power that saved me and the power that is transforming me and the power that will take me home. It all belongs to him. False teachers have come in. We won't go into this in depth. That's what chapter 2 is all about. False teachers have come in advocating this sort of laissez-faire strategy. And Peter has gone on full alert, warning the saints that there is danger ahead in that kind of approach to the Christian life. Douglas Moo writes this, people are in danger of becoming lax about holiness. Peter wants to sound a clear warning against spiritual slackness. And maybe we could think of it this way, just because it might help us to stick this in our minds a little bit. Uh, Peter knows what his name means. He is inescapably the rock. And in his last letter, of course, he referred to the church as living stones as well. And you might say that one of the things Peter is doing here is he's trying to say to the people of God, listen, don't take my rock analogy too far. Rocks are great. I moved some really big rocks into my garden uh, this, uh, well, this week. And, and they're great because they just sit in one place. You know, they, they, nothing happens to them. They're just there. They add some depth. They add some solidity to your garden. They're great to have in your garden. But at the end of the day, rocks just stay there. And Peter says, listen, you can't approach your spiritual life like a rock. At least you've got to be a living stone. But more completely, what Peter is saying here is he wants us to think of ourselves as plants, Right? As plants, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things that plants do. Plants grow and plants produce fruit. Plants grow and plants produce fruit. And the fruit that is being described here is this list of virtues that Peter has given to us. And for you to exhibit in your life this list of virtues, I won't read them again, they're right there, plain as they can be set out. The Word of God says this, make every effort. Be all the more diligent. Expend all of your energy. Make it the highest priority that you have in your life. Bring all of your energy and zeal to bear. Take pains towards this end. Be resolved to do this. Give it your all. Press on. Strive. Pursue. We can't take spiritual growth for granted, and we can't take it lightly. We must pour ourselves into it, body and soul, with all earnestness. Those phrases that I just gave to us, some of them are right out of Scripture. Some of them you recognize. Uh, press on, strive, pursue. Some of them are just synonyms, other ways of saying this same idea. But the basic idea is this. We have a responsibility for the responsibility that God has entrusted to us. We have responsibility for it. 
That's why we can be commanded in exactly these things. We have to take responsibility for the part of our spiritual lives that has been entrusted to us by God himself. Now please understand that this does not somehow deny or supplant the work of the Holy Spirit in us or the power of Christ. Quite the contrary. Our efforts require the first work and the greater ongoing work of Christ, of the Spirit of God, of God himself in us. And there are plenty of places in Scripture that we could go to see this reality. Let me just quickly just give a couple of them because I don't want this to be misunderstood as it often is in discussions about spiritual discipline. So on the front of your bulletin, you'll find the bottom quote there from Titus chapter 2. It reads like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's the grace of God that is doing this. The grace of God in the first place brings us salvation for all people. That's kind of the first thing that we were talking about. That's what Peter begins with, that it is the thing that saves us. But it is also the grace of God that trains us. We're being trained by the grace of God. And then we are called by having been trained to renounce those things, the ungodliness and the worldly passion uh, that is in the world. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that's, if you will, the way to say it in Christian language. Paul saying, I give all of my effort. I toil, I struggle, and it's with all of the energy that he has put within me. That's how I struggle. And of course, the verse that perhaps is the most familiar to many of you is the phrase in Philippians where it says, of course, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You work it out, for it is God who is, is at work within you. Uh, Jerry Bridges is one of my favorite authors over the course of my entire Christian life in this area, in this theme. I think he writes with great clarity. Uh, and I went back again in preparation for this uh, to his book, uh, The Discipline of Grace. And he puts it simply this way. He says, God's work does not make our effort unnecessary, but rather makes it effective. I'll just say it again, and this applies for us as Reformed Calvinists to many areas, but for this moment we're talking about this growth in grace. God's work does not make our effort unnecessary, but rather makes it effective. All right, and then uh, Bridges goes on to quote John Owen. Owen writes this, let us consider what regard we ought to have to our own duty and to the grace of God. Some would separate these things as inconsistent. If holiness be our duty, they would say, then there's no room for grace. And if it be the result of grace, then there's no room for duty. But our duty 
and God's grace are nowhere opposed in the matter of sanctification. For the one absolutely supposes the other. We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, nor does God give his grace for any other purpose than that we might perform our duty. That's the way to understand this in, uh, on, on page 7 of uh, your bulletins at the end of the service. I put in there uh, a question and answer from the larger catechism on the difference between justification and sanctification and underlined in there in this idea of sanctification, our growth in grace, our growth in Christ-likeness, that this work of the Spirit of God in us, if just reading right from the middle, in sanctification, his Spirit infuseth grace and enableth the exercise thereof. The Spirit of God has put the grace inside of us and now enables us to exercise the grace of God that is at work within us unto, and as it closes out, our growing up unto perfection. And again, Bridges then follows this by giving us the example of Jonathan Edwards. He writes, Jonathan Edwards, the great philosopher, theologian, and pastor, as well of colonial America, compiled a series of 70 resolutions, many of which I've read throughout the years in various sermons and contexts, to govern his own spiritual discipline and conduct. Talk about spiritual discipline, Edwards' resolutions would make most of our present-day disciplines look like spiritual kindergarten. But at the beginning of his list of written resolutions, he wrote these words, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Edwards was disciplined, but he was also dependent. This is not strange language to us. Every one of you who are communing members of this church took this vow. Here's the vow. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you? I do. Everybody here who's a member of this church resolved to that. You may hear the language of resolving in Edwards and things, oh, that's lodged in the flesh. No, no, no. You resolved. You resolved as well to do your best to follow after Jesus Christ in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says to his readers, and he says to us as well, make every effort. So, a question. A question. In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God and for our present and everlasting joy, are you making every effort? Are you making every effort? What will you say before the Lord when he asks you, did you make every effort to put these on, these qualities? Did you make the effort? What would it look like 
if you were making the effort? What would it look like if you were making every effort to put these on? Now, if in your mind just now you had crazy thoughts, and I'm going to define them as this, I should stay up all night periodically and pray for the entire night. I should memorize the entirety of the book of Psalms or Romans. Or I should have two-hour devotions every morning. If that was your answer to that, check yourself. That's not what's being said here. We have the full counsel of God that is before us. The question isn't, what does making every effort look like if you're a monk in a monastery by yourself? The question is, what does making every effort look like in your life? What does your conscience say about that question? What would your conscience guide you in with respect to those practices in your life right now, your situation right now, not somebody else's, not even somebody else's in the church right now? In your life, are you making every effort? Now, I couldn't resist. I asked Lauren if it had been long enough since I had read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, and she said that it was, but I know I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. Franklin is no evangelical believer, okay? He is not an evangelical believer in any sense of that term. He writes this in his autobiography. It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into as I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong. I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other, but I soon found that I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of intention, and inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. Franklin then goes on in his autobiography to describe the efforts that he took in achieving moral perfection. He developed a list of 13 virtues by scouring both scripture and the classics, decided that these were the 13 top virtues. He made a list of them that included then the virtues in one column and the days of the week on the other, and every night he would evaluate how he was doing with respect, with respect to all of the virtues, putting a mark into the various spaces that were there, but he would only focus on one virtue for each week because he wanted to take his time in working through each one. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever pursued it with that kind of zeal? Franklin continues later. But on the whole, though I never arrived at perfection, surprise, surprise, I had been so ambitious, sorry, let me start that again. But on the whole, though I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it, yet I was, by the endeavor, a better and a happier man than I should otherwise have been if I had not attempted it. Now, 
That's a man who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit of God at work in his life, who says, this is the effort that I'm going to take to achieve this. Peter says, make every effort. I suppose there is a question that is presupposed in make every effort, and that is this, do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want spiritual growth? Do you want a virtuous life, a holy life? Do you want fruitfulness? A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says of God, he wants to be wanted. He's the one who has sought us, and he is the one who, in finding us, commands, seek me. Seek me. Seek after me with all of your heart. Do you want it? Do you want God? An athlete must ask himself that question. Is it worth it? Do I want it? A musician has to ask that question. Edwards made his resolutions because he wanted it. He intended it, and so he was committed to it. William Law, the great Puritan writer and pastor, spoke of our intention and he asked this question in a truly Puritan kind of way. Why so many of us fall short of, the ho of holiness and devotion in Christianity? So he's asking it in a negative. Now, this is very heavy. But allow another generation to speak into ours. Why, right? Why do you fall short in holiness and devotion? It is because men have not so much the intention to please God in all their actions. It was this general intention that made the primitive Christians such eminent instances of piety and made the goodly fellowship of the saints and all the glorious army of martyrs and confessors. And if you will here stop and ask yourselves, why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. The most fundamental principle of Christianity is an intention to please God in all our actions as the best and happiest thing in all the world. Now, let's grab hold of that last phrase there. As the happiest thing in the world. That is a refrain that actually goes through many of these authors. If you take spiritual disciplines as all of the end in and of themselves and as the measure and mark of your standing before God, you will be desperately unhappy. If you take the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved you, that has called you, that has elected you, by which you have obtained the faith and the salvation and the grace unto an eternal salvation, and you say, in light of that, because of these things, because they are real, what sort of person do I want to be? I want to be a person who makes every effort to put these things on. That's the kind of person I want to be. because it will be for God's glory and our happiness. 
So may God grant to us this holy intention, or call it commitment, conviction. And may he then grant to us the strength that we might make every effort. May we then commit ourselves to the pursuit of God, the practices of discipline, and to encouraging one another in this, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be yours as well. Lord, as a people before you, we cannot help but confess that it is hard and impossible for us to say that we've made every effort. Forgive us. Be merciful to us. And we pray that you would change our hearts, transform the desires of our heart, and grant us the desire, the intention, to pursue you and to put on all of these things that Peter set before us in this letter unto your glory and unto our happiness. Jesus, we thank you that they all characterize you, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.